Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. You're going to listen to an interview with Greg Wisher, co-founder of Farmland LP. We're going to talk about how Farmland LP started and how their mission of showing that sustainable agriculture is more profitable than chemical agriculture is shaping up. We talked about how organic milk is the gateway drug into organic products and how they are slowly moving to a more perennial system on their land. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why am I focused on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. Before we get started, I've been recording these interviews next to my day job and I will definitely continue to do so and release about an episode a month. But at the same time, I would love to take this further, share more interviews. There are many more stories to share on investing in regenerative food and agriculture. More depth, improve the quality, maybe even doing some video series. So I started a Patreon community, which makes it easy to support creators like myself. If these podcasts have been of value to you, and if you have the means, I invite you to support me and make this happen. For more information, please find the link to my Patreon account in the description below. And now, without further ado, the interview. Enjoy! Welcome to Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered. I'm Kun van Seyen, your host. In the podcast of today, I'm joined by Greg Wischner, the co-founder of Farmland LP, one of the leading regenerative agriculture investment funds in the world. Welcome, Greg. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. And to start with, as I usually do, with a personal question, from all the things in the world you could be doing, why are you working on regenerative agriculture and specifically on investing in that? <laughs> well, one it's probably the most important thing that we could be doing. But uh, oh, we, why, we agree on that, of course. <laughs> but how did you end up there and and spend your days on that? So uh, this specifically started really uh, the 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 moment that my daughter was born. I have a, a daughter; she just turned eleven actually yesterday, and. Uh, the moment that she was born, I got very clear that my life was about helping her dreams come true. Uh, and in that moment, I also saw that we weren't uh, leaving a great planet for her to have those dreams come true in. And I also immediately got very clear that uh, really uh, she couldn't have her dreams come true unless all the kids uh, in that generation uh, could have their dreams come true. And, and that required a really big shift from the way that we were headed to uh, not to where we needed to go. And it really just started this inquiry for me uh, that lasted about two years about really what am I doing to really make a difference uh, for the future. Um, and 
so uh, it, it really took this kind of two-year introspective process uh, of looking at all the things I had done, all my skills, all my abilities, uh, and it all really came together uh, when uh, I went to go uh, visit a farm with uh, some farms, actually, for a week. We took a week-long road trip to go up and uh, 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 look at buying some farmland with uh, several friends and really saw that uh, farmland today just wasn't being managed well and that there were huge opportunities from a business perspective uh, to shift it, well, from an agronomic perspective, to shift it from conventional uh, agricultural practices to sustainable agricultural practices. And that also uh, mirrored a, uh, a business opportunity to uh, create more value and increase the cash flow. Uh, by converting it to organic and and also bringing livestock back onto farmland and 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 really that combination of the benefits of biological farming methods uh, and the business opportunities and then in the background the question of what can I do to really make a difference like that was the answer uh, and that really brought some key threads in my life together uh, and uh, that's what we've been doing since since 2009 and um, we're, we're continuing to do it and we're on a nice long long journey doing that and it really all started with with the birth of my daughter and asking what am I doing to make a difference and if we take it one step back what did, did you look at many other sectors in those two years before you decided to to spend a week looking at buying some farmland what, what were other let's say, stops in that journey? I've always done things in my career that uh, have made a difference, um, whether it, my, my degree is actually in biochemistry and molecular biology and uh, helped start a biotech company and we developed uh, treatment for metastatic brain cancer uh, for that. They got it uh, still on the market today. Uh, and I've also managed, I grew up managing investment real estate uh, and, uh, and I spent, uh, summer is growing up on a farm uh, as well, and so all of those came together basically. All all, all of those really came together. I, I you asked the question, what else could I do? What else did I look at? And it, it really, my my in some ways, looking at it from here, my life kind of started uh, in two thousand nine, looking at that farmland. Um, I don't know, just it's kind of where everything was leading to. So, and and if you look at that day or that week that you looked at farmland, probably with with those glasses for the first time, like from a business opportunity, instead of spending the summer there, instead of a playground uh, glasses, you you looked with the business opportunity glasses. What were the steps after that 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 led to where farmland LP now is? What were the first steps? What were some some lessons to to get it to? A product in the market, basically. Great. So, I sp spent a number of years in private equity. So the the business side of it was always kind of uh, crunching in the background. And so, when you seeing how farmland is managed today, and I, so my co-founder was actually on that trip uh, with me as well, Jason Bradford, and uh, he really has this tremendous expertise in sustainable agriculture. And so, being really deeply exposed to uh, the the practices that were possible around sustainability on farmland and my role was really listening to it from that business perspective understanding the biological 
biological science and the agriculture, but not knowing it at that level, but really translating it to, hey, how do you really make this happen at a large scale? Um, and how do you scale up sustainable agriculture? How do you shift the paradigm from chemical-dependent agriculture, a chemistry-based approach to agriculture, to a biological approach uh, to agriculture? And uh, so it was back-of-the-envelope work looking at, you know what, if we were going to buy this farmland and uh, be the farmers, uh, we would need at least $10 million worth of farmland uh, in order to make this basically financially viable if we were driving the tractors. And uh, we would need at least $50 million worth of farmland uh, if we were going to uh, turn it into some kind of fund that really other people could invest into. Um, and so that, and that started to be at the scale, the beginnings of the scale of the impact that we wanted to have. And, and fundamentally, we wanted to demonstrate that sustainable agriculture is more profitable than chemical-dependent agriculture. Uh, and that would be our way of essentially catalyzing the shift from chemical farming to biological farming. Um, so as soon as you, as soon as we saw that, you know, it would take at least $50 million worth of farmland in, in a nice fund uh, structure, uh, really on the drive home, uh, I was driving, Jason was sitting in the passenger seat, our friends were sitting in, uh, in the back. Uh, and uh, on that drive back from Oregon to California, uh, we really sketched out um, uh, the, the fund of Farmland LP and have been working on it full time ever since. And, and how close is it? Do you still have the sketches, first of all? And how close is it to to what it is now to those sketches? <laughs> uh, so I, I, I do still have the notes uh, somewhere, but a lot of it was uh, initially was the, the mental picture of it, uh, really understanding that farmland is a long-term asset. So the first fund was actually a 30-year fund. But, but the core tenants of it uh, are... Uh, basically the same as what we're doing now, uh, buying farmland, uh, converting it to organic, managing it sustainably, uh, and, and demonstrating that uh, it's more profitable. So we, we've actually shown that uh, on the farmland that we've managed uh, over all this time, uh, that the uh, organic farmland generates 72% more revenue per acre uh, than the conventional farmland. So uh, we're, we're really demonstrating these numbers, which is really quite nice. Yeah, which is absolutely essential for for the industry. I mean, I mean the regenerative agriculture industry, the sustainable agriculture industry. Um, can, can you walk us through through an example of um, could be a hypothetical one or a real one where you bought land and and what is really the difference on and also in the ground, but on the ground I'm managing. How is it so different? You you mentioned bringing livestock back. What is the the shift you make in terms of managing this land uh, different and and for the non-farmers in the audience, what, what should we picture when we think about that? Great question. So the, the first thing is to have a clear understanding about what conventional commodity agriculture looks like. Uh, so the U.S. has $2.6 trillion worth of farmland, uh, and that's the same economic value as all of the office buildings in the U.S. or all of the apartment buildings uh, in the U.S. And uh, and 40% of farmland is leased. So it is, uh, it is commercial real estate uh, like those other two sectors. And, and farmland, leased farmland, um, is really just 
farmed on a year-by-year -year basis. Uh, uh, neither the landlords nor the farmers have real incentive to really invest uh, in the land. And combined with government policies, you end up with 53% of U.S. farmland growing two commodity crops, corn and soy. <laughs> it's not because those are the best crops to grow on the land. Uh, it's really uh, an artifact of the ownership structure and the incentives uh, and the regulatory structure. And so what that though does create is a lot of opportunities to switch from that commodity agriculture system to something better. Uh, and so that's that's really what we focus on. Uh, and so so here's an example of some opportunities. So we bought uh, a large property 50 miles east of, uh, of where I am now, um, 4,200 acres. It's about 3.1 miles by 3.1 miles uh, in size. Uh, and it was growing, one of the main crops that was growing there was commodity corn, uh, not for human consumption. Uh, it was actually, well... <laughs> As, as it usually isn't for human consumption, yeah. <laughs> exactly. What is it, about 80% or something in the U.S.? I, I don't have the latest numbers, but... Humans uh, eat uh, less than 1% of the corn grown in the United States. Oh, wow. As as fresh corn, and then there's about 2 or 3% that's used in tortillas and tamales and things like that. Uh, but 12% uh, of U.S. corn is turned into high fructose corn syrup. Even better. <laughs> yeah. 40% is turned into ethanol, 40% is uh, fed to livestock, um, and this corn was uh, frequently sold to uh, be turned into high fructose corn syrup. Just to paint this picture, this is beautiful farmland, very high quality farmland, 50 miles away from San Francisco, which is the uh, largest market for locally grown organic food, uh, in in my knowledge, in the world. In the world, exactly. probably. Yeah. So, uh, very underutilized uh, from a from a business standpoint, from a revenue per acre standpoint, the but it was just very operationally efficient for the farmers and didn't require a lot of investment. So what we did is we bought this land and we said, okay, what's the best way to uh, uh, maximize biological productivity and economic value uh, from this farmland? Uh, and that looks very different. So rather than just growing commodity corn year after year after year on this land. We switched that over, planted some of the ground in pasture, uh, and again, high-quality cornland. Instead of the corn, you know, some of the corn was sold to uh, dairies or feedlots. Um, instead of growing corn, harvesting it, selling to a feedlot, we planted pasture and brought in uh, sheep uh, and cattle tenants on that land. Very regenerative and restorative to the land and generates uh, great economics uh, as well. Um, Instead of driving the corn to the cow, you... And it produces the same amount of meat per acre if we're growing pasture or if we produce or, or uh, if they produce corn and sell it to feedlots. So, uh, and a lot less costs, I can imagine, from an economic perspective. There's a lot less costs. Uh, on, there's a lot less uh, chemical inputs. Uh, there are some more higher labor costs. Um, but still, it ends up being better uh, for... And the premium you can get for through what is a pasture based meat of course in san francisco is is a very different level compared to the feedlot uh, animals exactly grass-fed grass-finished uh, animals uh, do uh, receive a price premium uh, and um, uh, there's just there there is exactly a strong market strong market demand for them as well 
So, so we plant some of the land in pasture. Uh, that usually it's in pasture for three to seven years. Uh, it really maximizes that soil fertility. We get it certified organic, uh, and then rotate in uh, to uh, organic vegetables, uh, and then rotate into grains, and then back into the pasture phase. And the vegetables, for example, instead of being corn that's turned into high fructose corn syrup, uh, it can be sweet corn, for example, uh, that is directly consumed uh, at uh, and bought at farmers markets or at uh, large uh, retailers like uh, Costco or Whole Foods, um, and much better uh, economics. So, uh, at least four to six times more revenue per acre growing sweet corn. Uh, than commodity corn. Um, so do vegetables for two to three years, then rotate into grains. Uh, again, uh, organic grains, they use up some of that excess nitrogen uh, that's in the soil. Uh, and uh, the grains also, they're very fine, strong roots, uh, also really break up that soil again. Um, and, uh, and then it can rotate back into pasture uh, and begin its seven to 10 year rotation cycle uh, again. So uh, and again, we've demonstrated that the land that's organic uh, is generating 72% more revenue per acre uh, than uh, if it stayed in that commodity system. And and that revenue, where does that come from? Is it the tenants selling, his, selling it? Is it Farmland LP having a brand uh, or a stand at a farmer's market or at Whole Foods? How does that work? Great. So the the revenue that I'm talking about is the uh, is the revenue that farmland LP sees, uh, and so that's generally in the form of rent, either fixed rent or revenue share. Uh, and the farmers are the ones that are uh, generally uh, uh, selling that. I might have a relationship with a uh, contract with Costco or a processor, um, and uh, and they're also. Uh, the only reason we're getting more revenue uh, is that they're getting much more revenue and, and more profits as well. And is it difficult to find farmers, tenants that that are, um, let's say, this holistic that look this holistically, or that look that are they're used to work with multiple crops, multiple rotations, etc.? Is that a is that one of your challenges, or is it relatively easy in the U.S.? I know here in Europe it's difficult to find people that are able to do multiple crops and livestock and and do that in a way that makes economic sense yeah so there's i have to split up your question into two parts um one is are there farmers uh around who uh grow organically and sustainably and the answer to that is yes we're generally buying farmland uh, in areas that already have strong demand for locally grown organic food and so you have farmers who are already produce already producing this way uh, and already have markets. And their biggest constraint is that they don't have enough organic land uh, in order to produce the food to, to serve their markets. So we, we provide that land. We help take the land through uh, the organic conversion process, get it certified organic, um, and then and provide it to them. Now, most uh, the second part of your question is farmers growing a multitude of crops. It is very hard for farmers to uh, produce sheep, cattle, corn, tomatoes, squash, uh, wheat, <laughs> buckwheat, other kinds of grains. Um, it go goes goes against all our our lessons in economic classes <laughs> about specialization. It's a exactly it is it is tremendously challenging, and the power of specialization is really is really uh, amazing and a feature of our uh, of our economic system. It also drives. <laughs> 
the 53% of U.S. farmland to grow to commodity crops, which is bad, <laughs> but unequivocally for a number of uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, but if we but if we look at that uh, the benefits of specialization and we apply it to sustainable agriculture, uh, then you say, you know what, you do want the person who grows the best tomatoes possible uh, to have as much land as they need in order to serve their markets, the market for uh, beautiful organic tomatoes. But you just can't grow tomatoes on the same ground year after year after year. That tomato farmer needs to rotate. Uh, around. And so we provide the land management and the land uh, ownership uh, to make sure that they have one enough land so that they can uh, uh, grow to the right size to meet their markets. Two, making sure that they always have fresh land uh, that is, uh, that they're growing tomatoes in the right part of that sustainable rotation. And so that, in a lot of ways, is the, the, the beauty and magic uh, of the uh, of the farmland LP model uh, that we did, uh, which was to harness both uh, organic and sustainable agriculture and specialization, helping those farmers really grow to the scale that they need in order to serve their customers. And I can see the elegance and the beauty of, of the model and the system. I can also imagine it raises some questions for the tenants and the farmers especially as they are um, building up the soil but don't have a long-term um, connection to that specific uh, piece of land they need to be comfortable with. And I don't know how, how you organize that, but comfortable that you find them another piece where they can move the year after with their tomatoes um, because otherwise, of course, they have customers and no tomatoes. So how, how do you make sure that that relationship with your farmers is not tied specifically to one spot of land, but basically to you as Farmland LP. How do you organize that? Sure. Well, they can see uh, all the land that we own, and we're long-term landowners. So they can also see that, and they can sign long-term uh, relationships with us uh, to get access to hundreds of acres uh, of land. Uh, and that that's the specific acres may rotate uh, over time, but it's really, like I mentioned, this uh, this. 4,200-acre single piece of property. Um, it's not you're not growing 4,200 acres of tomatoes uh, each year. <laughs> you're growing you know several hundred uh, you know hundreds of acres of tomatoes. Uh, and so instead of you know when you drive onto the farm, instead of going left, you might go right. Um, and these farmers are very used to rotating uh, like that. And I can give them 10-year access or more. Uh, to that farmland, but most importantly for them, uh, I can say, you know what, you're always you're going to get farmland that's always one or two years out from having been pasture for three to seven years. So they're always they know that they're actually always going to be getting essentially virgin soil that has high soil fertility and very low pest pressure. Um, so they're actually going to have much reduced uh, operating costs and greater yields uh, than if they were trying to farm on the same ground year after year. And they wouldn't have to worry about uh, planting uh, broccoli, corn, and wheat uh, on three quarters of their ground so that they could get a quarter of the ground growing tomatoes. They could just focus all of their efforts growing great tomatoes and serving their customers. So there really are a lot of benefits in there. And really the farmers, the farmers get it very quickly uh, and they're very excited about it and they, they really like working with us. No, I can, I can definitely imagine. And 
speaking of soil fertility, what's the difference you with with a biology background as well? What's the difference you see maybe from the land you started working eight years ago and now, or this big piece of land you you mentioned? Uh, what from a a non-expert or non-farmer perspective, how would you describe the difference of of managing some of these pieces of land for eight seasons so differently? Great. Um, so, you know, I mean, the, the the first piece of property that we bought up in Oregon was 154 acres, and uh, we uh, put it pretty much in uh, in pasture right away. And the first piece of land that we rotated out of pasture and put it into squash, uh, we had a uh, a farmer who was uh, an expert at growing. He had grown some uh, organic squash, but it was mostly conventional squash. And so he he did both. Uh, he farmed uh, organic squash that was turned into uh, baby food. Uh, and in farming this ground, he said that had been in pasture for, I think, four years at the time. He said that this was his least weedy field ever uh, that he'd seen, conventional or organic. So the pasture phase had really broken down uh, the uh, the weeds. Uh, we had wonderful, clear fields. We had great productivity uh, on that land. And he could really see a dramatic difference. Uh, in in soil quality versus ground that had been uh, uh, that had been managed conventionally up until that point, uh, and and that continued, and then you can see actually as you farm it with annual crops um, how that how that ground changes. So over several years, weed pressure can increase a little bit, soil fertility can go down a little bit. Uh, and uh, at at that point, there's a certain point that you say, okay, now we're going to rotate it into grains and then put it back into pasture. And so that's the kind of ongoing year by year management uh, that we do, and the flexibility that we have in uh, in these rotations. Um, and uh, but it's a very wonderful process, and you uh, you always put in a lot and take a little out, and then put in. Uh, uh, put it back into the the pasture or perennial phase uh, again uh, at, uh, to regenerate it. So we're always making it better on this kind of nice, slow, undulating upward cycle. It's 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 fun. And I can imagine you measure that as well. Oh, uh, we do biodiversity. That's how you come up with the planning and the flexibility. Do you want to learn how to invest, or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. We do. We measure a number of things. Uh, There is one of my favorite quotes, which is that um, not everything that... uh, matters can be measured and not everything you measure matters. <laughs> and so there there are some things that are that are harder to manage that I that I wish we could on a on a on a very quantitative basis. Uh, but there are key indicators and um and one of the things also is getting scientists to agree on what some of the benefits are. And I'll give you a very specific example. Uh, we we were actually, uh, we applied for and got a grant from the USDA for $250,000 to uh, translate our agricultural practices uh, into, uh, have two scientific groups identify the physical 
benefits that we're creating through uh, improved soil quality, improved water, improved uh, air, et cetera, and biodiversity, uh, and and also translate those into economic uh, economic benefits. And this is going to be released uh, either later this year or early next year. That's not easy, probably. It's not easy, but we're very grateful to have the $250,000 grant from the USDA, uh, and it's it's a good process. One of the things that is a personal uh, frustration of mine is that uh, when you look at carbon sequestration, so we're sequestering a lot of carbon uh, in the ground, and uh, agricultural practices have an opportunity to sequester very meaningful amounts of atmospheric carbon, so somewhere between 10 and 24% uh, of the uh, annual uh, output could be sequestered in uh, in agricultural soils. It's the reason why I'm interested in regenerative agriculture, apart from the great food, obviously. (laughs) That too, that's a lot of reasons. The the all the science uh, on carbon sequestration is basically based on the carbon that's stored in the top six to eight inches of topsoil. Now, if you look at our pasture phase, uh, you dig down and roots are going down six to eight feet, not six to eight inches, and the roots are basically uh, pumping carbon uh, into the soil, into that into that deep soil. But there is not sufficient uh, data to be able to quantify the amount of carbon that's going in uh, below those top six to eight inches. And so what ends up on our reports is we get zero credit for carbon going below basically eight inches. And this is one of the big quandaries for me is because I dig a hole and I see (laughs) that carbon is being pumped into the ground below that. And it seems wrong uh, to give to apply zero credit uh, to uh, to that carbon um, but that's where uh, the the science uh, basically needs to catch up to that uh, and I, I really just think in general we're underreporting the amount of carbon that gets sequestered uh, in some of these good agricultural practices and it's okay and it's uh, very important to have uh, scientific consensus I'm a huge fan of that um, and uh, but but this is an example where uncertainty can get in the way of really communicating the, the full potential uh, of sustainable agriculture, really the full benefits uh, of sustainable agriculture. It's like a positive externality that's not being brought into the operation. Yeah. Exactly. Just like the dead zones aren't being incorporated as a negative yes. externality on the corn thing. They would be bankrupt if they would. Exactly. And, and yet my pasture has to compete economically with the price of commodity corn being sold to feedlots. So not 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 only do I have to beat that on a pure economic uh, playing field, um, but I also am not getting the uh, crop subsidies and crop insurance that they're getting. It's very difficult to insure livestock, but they can insure corn, right? Can't can't insure the pasture with livestock on it, but they get corn insurance, uh, and uh, and yet that has negative externalities. We have positive externalities, and, and we just don't get any credit for that. So it's okay. I think it's something that will play out over time. You get paid for it in terms of resilience. Um, but um, anyway, it, it's an example of how sustainable agriculture, even with one hand tied behind its back, is still superior. Or two, yeah. Yes. No, I, I can see that. And in terms of you, you mentioned the rotation, and uh, what, what's the long-term vision for that land? You mentioned some perennials. Is there, will that rotation keep rotating, 
or are you introducing some perennial uh, systems plans that at some point the landscape will change or will it just be or just between brackets will it be this the seven to eight year rotation uh, you will do for eternity that's a really great question. So we, we really look at uh, at the land and uh, what its highest and best uses, what its ideal use is in the realm of sustainable agriculture. Uh, so we're not looking at Walmarts. We're not planting Walmarts. <laughs> this. Um, also real estate. Yes. But uh, so uh, we actually, for example, on some of our land just completed a uh, permanent crop suitability study uh, where we looked at all the main success factors for permanent crops and identified uh, actually about half of the acreage uh, that could be converted to permanent crops. Uh, and it's a mix of uh, uh, trees and uh, vines and uh, uh, organic blueberries, for example. And so uh, we're, uh, you know, we do think that this mix of, of uh, open ground uh, and the uh, perennial crops uh, really have some wonderful synergies, uh, both uh, uh, agronomically and ecologically, uh, as well as economically. And so uh, that's one of the things that's happening now uh, to um, uh, enhance the ecology, and it will also deliver very positive uh, benefits for the investors as well. Oh, very interesting. And for the for Farmland LP itself, um, if we look back maybe a year ago and what has changed uh, in terms of, of your work, in terms of Farmland LP, what have been the, the major shifts you, you've been busy with and, and happy to share? That's a great question. So, you know, we, we now manage uh, just around 13,000 acres worth of farmland uh, and we're at a scale now where we're able to uh, hire and bring in really extraordinary people. And so over the past uh, more than a year, but but it's kind of borne fruit <laughs> over the past year, uh, is really be able to build up uh, a really extraordinary farm management team. And uh, that's been uh, a fun process. It's been a hard work uh, process, uh, but uh, but that's really paying off and and it's been the biggest change over the past year. And, and what does the farm management team do within Farmland LP? Uh, so they do everything from uh, managing the uh, uh, planning out the rotations uh, of the land, every single field. Uh, we look at a 10-year management plan uh, on that land uh, and look back uh, as far as we can. So it could be four to nine years or more. Uh, and so it's that strategic planning uh, around the crop rotations. Uh, it's getting that land certified organic. Uh, and we also, particularly in uh, Oregon, uh, we do uh, some some direct farming uh, as well, uh, in addition to the tenant uh, the, the tenant partner farmers that we work with. Um, and we also do the uh, some livestock management uh, as well. So not livestock ownership, but just the management of the livestock uh, uh, on the ground. So, you know, what we do uh, is it's it is more complex than uh, just a corn, corn, soy rotation. Um, and so it's much more fun. It's 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 much more fun. Uh, it is more complex. Uh, and so having the people in place and the systems in place uh, to really manage that on a go forward basis, uh, we're, we're, at a, we're at a good scale. So if we would look back a year from now, what would you be 
most happy with that, that have happened um, in let's let's say the next few months, but also in the, the let's say if we look at August next year. That's great. So continued systems development and uh, and growth on the the farm management side. Uh, the things that are kind of uh, exciting right now are, are uh, integrating uh, more uh, technology uh, in, into what we're doing. So um, I have a technology background as well, and so uh, integrating. Uh, Aerial imaging, multispectral aerial uh, imaging. You're close to Silicon Valley. Exactly. And so integrating our GIS system with the regular crop imaging, uh, determine biological productivity, and feeding that back to the farm managers so that it's not just reliant on scouting. Uh, and uh, we can really kind of see problems uh, as they're happening uh, and give feedback, whether it's a, a tenant farmer or, or our farm team, whether it's on uh, growing crops or uh, pest issues, nutrient issues, uh, or irrigation uh, as well. Um, there, there's some uh, exciting things that are uh, basically coming into place now and over the next 12 months that are exciting. Very, very interesting. That, that will change significantly from because you're managing such a such large plots scouting is uh, is always an issue because you can never see everything and, and from the air it's it in, at least in theory it's a lot easier uh, in theory it's easier uh and there's you know sometimes um weed pressure builds up in, in an organic system weeds are, are an important issue uh and if if you have uh green uh, or brown at the wrong times, uh, you most likely have a weed issue that you can send people out uh, to look at and deal with and catch early. And so, if you've uh, if if a field has been plowed, but there's a lot of green there uh, that you haven't planted yet, you've got a weed issue, uh, and you probably want to deal with that before you plant your next crop. Um, if you have a pasture field, um, but you have large dead spots in there, uh, you probably have a weed problem in that pasture, uh, and the, the weeds probably have gone to seed and died off very quickly, and so you're not going to get a lot of livestock forage uh, off of that land, um, and maybe it's time to rotate that field out. Uh, into uh, into annual crops or replant a pasture. So uh, we can, uh, with the use of technology, uh, help identify those issues, help quantify them, uh, and really discuss them at a management level. Um, discuss issues at a management level that otherwise might have been caught just at the, at the pas at the pasture management level. Uh, so uh, it really. Uh, gives us an opportunity to quickly and efficiently manage issues that can uh, can end up uh, impacting the economics at the end of the year uh, or uh, impact the land rotations. So um, it, it, it really actually brings that technology, rather than remove us from uh, the land, uh, actually can bring us much closer to it. And for, for Farmland LP, the, the place where you are now after eight years, what's the biggest bottleneck for for growth what's the biggest bottleneck for for farmland lp at the moment we have a great team we're at a, a very good scale from a uh, a management standpoint from a management team standpoint uh, and we have the capability to manage more acres and we have properties that we want to acquire so at this particular uh, phase we're uh, raising additional capital uh, to uh, to buy more land that really is contiguous with our existing properties uh, and so that just 
from a from a scale perspective that that's where we are right now and in terms for for the sector i mean you're very active in the sector you've been in that for for a while and probably one of the key players in in the regenerative agriculture sector what do you see as as the main barriers to to scale up the regenerative agriculture sector um and really get it to a, a much higher level i really think that when we started this, I was concerned about competition uh, and about a lot of competitors coming into the space. And um, and now I'm concerned about competition, meaning there's not enough of it. <laughs> so uh, there's not enough people uh, really taking on sustainable agriculture, and it's because it takes several years to uh, really. It takes several years to get the land certified organic, and then takes uh, time to get uh, to to show those economic benefits. So hopefully, what we're doing by showing that uh, it does work, uh, that we do have uh, uh, increased returns from organic and sustainable agriculture, uh, that uh, that this will uh, expand and will continue to hit uh, additional miles. Stones, and we'll continue to uh, publicize those as much as we can. Uh, and um, so, uh, I, I, I really think that the big catalytic shift comes from the average everyday farmer uh, understanding and being very clear uh, that sustainable agriculture is more profitable than chemical-dependent agriculture. You have the customer demand uh, out there, which is phenomenal and continues to grow like a freight train. Um, you have strong demand from uh, the buyers, the packaged food companies, uh, the retailers, etc. cetera. Um, and you have uh, farmers that will, that will grow uh, uh, those crops, whether it's organic or conventional. Um, and, but it takes that land, it takes someone managing that land uh, and being willing to take the three years to convert it to organic uh, in order to have that farmland be organic to serve those organic markets. Uh, and um, you know, we're, we're trying to uh, help investors in general, whether who invest with us uh, or uh, uh, externally, uh, understand the benefits of that and understand that, that it does work and it is worth that. Uh, it's worth that journey. It's a worthy journey. And what do you say to people who are saying that organic is starting to lose a bit of its um, content, that maybe the bar is, is a bit too low, that it's many people are, are organic according to certification, but if you look at if they're building soil or not, if they're, they're looking at it um, with a more holistic view, they maybe aren't. Um, how do you look at that debate? I look at it as um, when people start to ask questions about what they're buying in the supermarket, <laughs> what food they're putting in their kid's mouth uh, or, uh, or their own. Uh, once they start asking questions uh, that they are on the good journey. <laughs> so uh, they, they never stop. Yeah. You can't go back. They never stop, and they uh, we call we call milk the gateway drug for organics because uh, the uh, organic mom, when she moves from uh, breastfeeding the child to giving them a bottle, uh, organic milk is the generally the first organic product uh, that new organic consumers buy uh, to feed their little baby. So they're asking the question, what 
what do I want to put in my baby and what went into that food? Uh, well, then they buy organic baby food. Then they, uh, then the whole household shifts. It, it happens and it's natural and it's beautiful. And you keep asking questions, what's in my food? And I think it's great. Uh, the organic standards are not the holy grail. Um, there are, uh, there are some issues in it. Um, and, uh, there are uh, there's a whole spectrum of sustainable agriculture practices that are really amazing, really extraordinary, and affect everyone in in their daily lives beyond just what they put in their mouths. Uh, and uh, once you start asking these questions, uh, you really just don't stop. You're awake uh, at that point, and it's just part of a a really wonderful journey. And if you, I mean, you mentioned already, you're you're sometimes also working with or advising. Investors that haven't invested in uh, your fund or um, showing that it's possible. Let's pretend there there's a, a whole arena of smart impact investors listening to this podcast, uh, which might be there actually. But what would you advise them? Where to start? They are ready to invest. They put their their capital, maybe their full portfolio, to work in regenerative agriculture and sustainable agriculture, but they don't know where to start. What would be your your first step as an advice? I, I really want them first to know themselves uh, and to know what they're investing in and what they're uh, looking for. Um, so, you know, the first question to ask themselves is what's their time frame for investing? Uh, and these are there's often a confusion between the charitable impact that they want to have and the uh, investment needs that they have. And so, uh, and they may think that they're uh, impact first, but they really need their capital back and they really want a return on their investment because they have very specific goals, whether it's for their lifetimes or their kids. And so uh, to know those uh, investment parameters first and, and then look at, okay, what kind of impact do I want to have? That's great. Um, and once they once they're clear on that, then they can look at, okay, great. What can go in the public markets uh, and what should go in the private markets. And in the private market, um, what we've done is set up something that's much more heavily weighted to land and commercial real estate. Uh, so long-term um, investments that have a, appreciation and cash flow. But it but it's very long-term and it's not liquid. Um, some people may want more operating risk and direct, invest directly in farms. Uh, and that's that's great. Capital is definitely needed there, but they need to understand the risk uh, uh, cycles there. They're greater than uh, investing on just the farmland side, um, but there are also great opportunities there. So, um, to so for investors, number one, to know themselves, and then to be able to see how uh, uh, any of these investments in sustainable agriculture really fit for them, so that they can uh, make them, make them powerfully, allocate the right amount of their portfolio to it, uh, and uh, and uh, and really know that they are actually making a difference in a way that really works for them and really works for the world as well. Thank you so much for that. And with that, I would like to to finish this interview. Um, thank you so much for your time. I'd definitely be checking in in a year from now and to see um, how the drones or the aerial photography is, is working and uh, and of course how, how everything else is going with, uh, with Farmland LP. Thank you so much, Greg. Wonderful speaking with you, Cohen. You just listened to an interview with Greg Wisher, co-founder of Farmland LP, and we talked about how they're making sustainable farmland more profitable than conventional chemical farmland. Thank you for making the time to listen to this podcast and making it all the way till the end. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. 
If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.